You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, we thank you for bringing us safely together again this afternoon. How quickly this week has gone. The blessings that we have received. We are thankful for your presence on this campground. And we pray once more for the Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide this hour. As we contemplate prophecy and its relevance and application to uh, some of the more uh, financial aspects of our lives, I pray you will open our eyes and help us to be faithful to obey uh, and to be faithful until you come. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're into our second half of the week, and we are going to be taking a dive into prophecy again this afternoon. And if you haven't noticed, yesterday the title of the message was, When Do We Sell Everything? Today the question is about the final economic crisis. These topics really came out of frequently asked questions that I would receive in the course of doing financial seminars and counseling and talking with people. And so this, today, we're going to be answering another question, at least studying to, to try to find the answer. What is this whole thing about the economic collapse that we keep hearing about? But before we go any further, I have to make my little plug. I have my Saving the Crumbs blog. You can find more information about personal finance there and also Audioverse. Yesterday, I mentioned the Last Day Events Explained series by Dr. Norman McNulty. I think it's still relevant to mention that in case you want uh, to get an overview uh, on Last Day Events. But when it comes to economic and end-time prognostications, it seems that there is frequently an association or an assumption that the end of time is going to come alongside or is synonymous with some sort of market crisis. Am I off base in saying that this is kind of like the unspoken feeling we all have, right? It's like whenever the stock market crashes, right? I still remember 2008. There were people declaring, this is it. This is the end of the world. And every time that there are gyrations in the economy, and certainly COVID-19 is one of the biggest ones in recent memory, again, there is this automatic, almost knee-jerk reaction like, We're coming up on the end of time. And prophetically, there's got to be some relationship, right? At least that's what we think. So I I don't want to just go off of these gut feelings. I don't want to just go off of what is, you know, perhaps a common narrative that is just accepted. I want to actually know what the Bible says. But before we go there, I do want to take a look at a little bit of market data because... You, as I just mentioned, every time that there's a stock market crash, there is someone heralding the end of the world. And it doesn't have to even be in the church. If you just pay attention to CNBC or Bloomberg Magazine or just some YouTube guy talking about finance, there's going to be someone saying, this is the big one. This is the final crash. And civilization as we know it is going to be over. So on the screen there, you see a 90-year stock market chart. 
And I need to make this disclaimer. This chart is what's called a log logarithmic graph, meaning as you go higher in the graph, it is an exponential graph. So it looks like a straight line, but if it were on a linear graph, it would be actually a hockey stick growing exponentially. But any, anyway, that's the only way to make it look reasonable on a small screen. But I have circled on the screen three of the biggest market collapses that we've had in the last 90 years. The first one on the far left is, of course, the Great Depression in 1929. The next one is 2008, the housing crisis in 2008, and then the COVID crash last year in 2020. Is it just my eyes, or does it look like the stock market has just gone up the whole 90 years? Now, I'm not here making any type of financial, giving financial advice or investment advice. No, that's not what I'm talking about at all. What I'm trying to say is that 100% of end-time prognosticators predicting the end of the world based on market movements have been wrong. Zero of them have been right. And that's including, you got to remember, these 90 years, what did it include? We had all of, not only these catastrophic financial crises, we had two world wars and many other wars, right? The Cold War and Vietnam and Korean War, Gulf War. We had countless natural disasters. We had now COVID-19. And yet through it all, and of course we had presidents of you know, both parties back and forth and every time there's an election, somebody says this is going to be the end of the republic. And you know, this is just how it goes. But yet the market has just continued to march in one direction. And it's been up. So what am I trying to say? Very simply, the stock market is a terrible predictor of the end of the world. 30 plus crashes since 1900, zero of them have corresponded with the end of time. And, you know, as they say, even a broken clock is tw right twice a day. Sooner or later, someone's going to be right, and it will be the last one. But the point I'm trying to say here is that it is a extremely difficult dilemma. It's a double dilemma, actually to try to base our prophetic interpretation or predictions on market movements. There's a saying that goes something like this. It is difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. And it's doubly difficult to predict which is the final market crash because not only do you have to predict when the next crash is, you have to be able to predict that that next one will be the last one. There's got to be two steps here. And just think about it. We have Wall Street and all of the financial centers in the whole world controlling trillions of hundreds of trillions of dollars. And every single one of those firms and banks and investment firms and houses, they all would like to be able to predict when the next market crash is going to be. Don't you think? There are hundreds of trillions of dollars at stake here. And nobody is able to do it. Even the acclaimed investor, Warren Buffett himself, will tell you. He has no idea what the market is going to do in the future. And he's one of the greatest investors of all time. And so, why? This is the question. Why, of all people on the face of the planet, do Seventh-day Adventists fall for the CNBC talking head wannabe financial prophets? Why do we actually pay any attention to these people 
on network TV or wherever else, on YouTube and social media, trying to make their financial predictions. We have something far more reliable than financial prognosticators, economists, or stock analysts. Somebody should have said amen to that. And what do we have? We have the Bible, and this is an important principle to remember when it comes to the end times. And I might add, this is not just for the economic news. It might even apply to maybe even some of the other current events that are going on in our day. We ought to remember to filter the news through the Bible and not the Bible through the news. You get what I'm trying to say? This is a hermeneutical principle a principle of sound prophetic interpretation. The Bible is the standard by which we measure everything else. So now, having given you that little preamble, what does the Bible have to say about end-time economics? So we're going to look at three points uh, at at the onset here. And the first thing the Bible tells us is that there will be economic activity until the very end. How do I know this? Jesus himself says in Luke 17, verse 28 to 30, Likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built it. That sounds like economic activity to me. But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. We've all read that verse before. There will be some level of economic activity in the world when Jesus comes. Now, the next statement comes from last day of Eds, and I must confess, I hesitated to include this statement, and I think you'll know why, because I don't fully, I I cannot say with certainty that I fully understand uh, what this is referring to, but I think it gives us enough uh, to go off of for the purpose of our presentation. It says, Christ declared, last day events, page 76, Christ declared that when he comes, some of his waiting people will be engaged in business transactions. Some will be sowing in the field, others reaping and gathering in the harvest, and others grinding at the mill. It is not God's will that his elect shall abandon life's duties and responsibilities and give themselves up to idle contemplation living in a religious stream. We talked about it yesterday, how there's a time when the saints are to let loose all of their assets. And so how does that harmonize with this idea of engaged in business transactions? The best I can come up with at this point is that it doesn't necessarily mean engagement with the worldwide financial markets. Business transactions is talking about agricultural type work. There might be some, you know, uh, transactions between people uh, who are waiting for the Lord to come during that time, perhaps. But the point of this statement is the point that I'm trying to make here is that there will be some form of economic activity until the very end. So if we are expecting some sort of nuclear holocaust, some wasteland, dystopian future where it's just like desert, right? Or the whole planet's going to look like the surface of Mars before Jesus comes, that's not biblical, right? If that's what we think, we've probably been watching too many science fiction movies. But the Bible says there will be economic activity until the very end. However, point number two, this is related to our topic yesterday, there will be worldwide economic sanctions placed on those who refuse the mark of the beast. And we know this statement well, Revelation 13, 17, that no man might buy or sell save he that had the mark or the name of the beast 
or the number of his name. And if you think about it, it stands to reason that this punishment, the economic sanctions of no buying or selling, only makes sense if there is still an economy functioning in some manner. Or else, if everybody is not buying or selling, then what's the point of telling a certain group of people that they can't buy or sell, right? And point number three, there will indeed be a worldwide financial, a worldwide final, I should say, final economic collapse before Jesus comes. Now, wait a minute. It seems kind of contradictory. On one hand, we're saying that there will be some economic activity going on, and then on the other hand, there is still going to be an economic collapse. We need to define our terms just a little bit. When, and, and I think particularly after the past year that we have gone through with COVID, we have, we're all better equipped to understand what I'm about to say. Just because we go through a global economic collapse or crisis, it doesn't mean that the planet is going to stop working. It doesn't mean that there's going to be no economic activity whatsoever or that people are all of a sudden going to no longer trade with one another. In the past year, countries, you hear it in the news all the time, countries have of their own volition chosen to destroy their economy. We had, and we are still living through, a market crisis. Economic collapse is actually not too strong of a term. But have we still had economic activity going on? Sure. But the world, nevertheless, is in a very different state than prior to COVID. So, of course, COVID is only a prelude, and what we are going about to look at in Scripture is going to be far more severe than that. But the illustration is simply this. When we talk about a final economic collapse, it does not necessarily mean that there can be no more commerce, no more travel, no more transportation, no more trade whatsoever. It's just going to be severely disrupted and in a manner that really is uh, a crisis situation. And so I asserted here, point three, that there will be a worldwide final economic collapse before Jesus comes. How do I substantiate this from Scripture? Let's take a look in Revelation chapter 18. We're going to read a number of passages here, so let's go through it. First, verse uh, 9 and 10 says, And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, speaking of Babylon the harlot, shall bewail her and lament for her. And when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that great city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Skipping down, verse 11 and then verse 15 and 16. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise anymore. That sounds like a market collapse. No more trading for the merchants of the earth. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour, so great riches is come to naught, and every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city, wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea, 
by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. Do you see a financial collapse described in these verses? We see the final judgment on Babylon, the harlot, and caught in the wake of the judgments that are poured out by God onto Babylon, trade is disrupted. The, the, the traders by sea, we read here, they're weeping. The merchants of the earth, they're weeping because no one buys from them anymore. That is the final economic collapse, and it corresponds with the judgment and destruction of Babylon. So, as good Bible students, let's ask our Bible questions. What causes this collapse? Or what causes the judgments upon Babylon? Going back to the beginning of the chapter, we're in Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 3. Babylon is fallen, is fallen, for all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So Revelation 18 paints an end-time picture of an illicit union. That's what uh, fornication is talking about. Illicit union between the kings of the earth, which represent the political powers, having an illicit union with this harlot or a corrupted church as a woman Uh, as the, the, the prostitute is represented in Bible prophecy. But notice, it's not just a church-state union between the kings and this woman. Who else is in bed with, the, with them? The merchants, the economic powers of the world. And you got to understand, for us, it's almost second nature now. When we look at who really holds the power, it's not just the states and the governments anymore. Corporations now have as much wealth and control as even the statesman who, who supposedly makes the laws to regulate them. We just have to look in big tech and the information technology, companies that control all of the flow of information around the world. We understand, prophetically speaking, those merchants, those corporations, and those economic powers they will play a part in the final movements. They also will commit fornication with Babylon. More on that in a moment, but let's continue reading. What causes the collapse? So we see that they're all sort of joined together at the end times. Verse 4 and 5 says, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. That's a key phrase. Her sins have reached unto heaven. Keep that in mind. Verse 8 of Revelation 18 says, Therefore, so what, therefore, what's the therefore? Therefore, right? Because her sins have reached unto heaven, therefore shall her plagues come in one day. This is talking about the seven last plagues. Death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. So what causes the collapse of not just the world economy, but the destruction of Babylon, the final economic collapse happens when Babylon's sins reach unto heaven and God's judgments in the form of the plagues fall on her. And the kings, meaning the political powers, and the merchants, the economic powers, are wiped out because they have fornicated themselves with Babylon. You see the picture? That's Revelation 18 in a nutshell. So this begs the question, when do her sins reach unto heaven, right? Because that's the trigger 
You caught that. They're joining together an illicit union, but there is a trigger by which the judgments begin to fall from God. So when do her sins reach heaven? Well, guess what? Ellen White asks that exact question in this quote, Last Day Events, page 98, uh, 198, excuse me. When do her sins reach unto heaven? Quoting Revelation 18, 2 through 5. When the law of God is finally made void by legislation. There it is. Last Day Events, page 134. It is at the time of the national apostasy when acting on the policy of Satan, the rulers of the land will rank themselves on the side of the man of sin. It is then the measure of guilt is full. The national apostasy is the signal for national ruin. For those of you who were here yesterday, this should be you know, similar to what we read, a similar quote. It should be familiar to you. National apostasy, when the law of God is made void by legislation, what event in prophetic history are we referring to? That's the Sunday law. And that national apostasy is the signal for national ruin. And so the national ruin we discussed briefly yesterday includes this final economic collapse. So what have we seen? The global powers of the state and the economy joined together in an illicit union with Babylon, that harlot, the corrupted church. And together, they are going to make void the law of God through legislation. That's a Sunday law. And that brings the fullness of their guilt. Their sins reach unto heaven. And at that point, God pours out his judgments in the plagues. And that is when the economic collapse happens. So what does this mean? What this means is that the final economic collapse spoken of in prophecy is not a sign of the Sunday law, but rather a result of it. Okay, is that clear how we arrived at that conclusion through a study of Revelation chapter 18? All right, so I guess that's the end of our study. No, just joking. I hope that's been clear. So this has, there are several implications then to this. This means that we should not expect the final dystopian crisis, you know, level market collapse before the Sunday law. But neither should this put us, you know, off guard should there be market crises and crashes before the Sunday law, right? So what I'm trying to say is that just because Revelation 18 describes the final collapse and it happens to be after the Sunday law, when the seven last plagues are falling, that does not mean that it is not possible for there to be other market collapses before that. Those just won't be the last one. You understand what I'm saying? You talk to any economist and they will tell you that there will be, should time last, there will be more market crashes. That's just a fact of, you know, the market cycles and and uh, uh, what happens in a free market economy. So the next question here that I want to ask is can we better understand some of the economic signs of the times? Just like we asked yesterday, can we know with a bit more precision then what actually should we expect to see in the financial world that will lead into the final crisis? We don't want to set times. We know we're not going to be able to pinpoint with precision exactly when, what is going to happen. But can we know that we're headed the right direction and the season 
uh, in which we are living. There. So today we're going to take a look at four signs. Okay, four signs from inspiration that helps us get an idea where we're headed. All right, and the first one, and we're going to be doing that for the balance of our time together. So the first one of these economic signs of the times is globalism as a precursor to the universal Sunday law. We discussed yesterday briefly this idea of a universal Sunday law. Generally, when we talk about a Sunday law, and this is particularly the case for us here in the United States, when we say the Sunday law, we assume it is an American law. Isn't that true? In fact, most Adventists around the world, because I've, I've done a fair bit of speaking internationally, everybody talks about the National Sunday Law and everyone's eyes are fixated on America. And that's because of Re- uh, Revelation chapter 13, the beast with two horns, speaking as a dragon. Yes, we know that. But, but, we know that the final events is going to engulf the whole world. It's not just going to be this country. And there are statements, which we're going to look at in a moment, that show us clearly that the Sunday law eventually goes around the world. How does that happen? And relating also to our talk yesterday, that's when we move into the severe phase of the Sunday law. But how do I, why, and, and, and what's this globalism thing? So let's take a look at, at the Bible. Revelation 18, verse 3. It says, the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. So it's talking about global political powers and global economic powers joining up with Babylon the harlot. So there is a global movement. It's not just in one country. Revelation chapter 17, verse 12 and 13, uh, it talks about the ten horns. And I know we're, we're, I'm not going to get into all the weeds with Revelation chapter 17, but it's the beast with seven heads, ten horns, on which the harlot rides. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. These have one mind and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. So Revelation chapter 17 paints a picture, ten kings, the number ten also represents a global type of feeling, right? A, 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 a collection of kings around the world, they're going to lend their power to the beast for one hour. That sounds like globalism. And I have to interject this a bit tongue-in-cheek. When we preach about Daniel chapter 2 and the toes of the image, you know, this, you know what I'm talking about, the iron mixed with clay. Don't we always say, the kingdoms will never come together. They will never unite. Technicality, okay? Mild technicality. I'm not, I'm not throwing all of our evangelists under the bus. I preached that myself. Revelation chapter 17 actually tells us there actually will be a short time at the very end in which the 10 kings do unify, okay? They do unify when the whole world wanders after the beast. That's a globalist type of movement. Let's continue. Revelation 13, verse 14, saying to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast. Okay? It's a worldwide type of language. Revelation 13, 16 and 17. And he causes all, everywhere in the world, both small and great, poor, uh, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Again, 
It is a global coalition that enables a universal Sunday law around the world. Let's see what the spirit of prophecy has to say about this. Last day events, page 135. Foreign nations will follow the example of the United States. Though she leads out, yet the same crisis will come upon our people in all parts of the world. There it is. It's not just in the United States, other countries. And this next statement in Testimonies for the Church, volume 5, page 212, is interesting to me. Notice what it says. The decree has been passed by the highest earthly authority that they shall worship the beast and receive his mark under pain of persecution and death. May God help his people now. For what can they do in such a fearful conflict without his assistance? What is the highest earthly authority? If we are to think about it today, I think I would think maybe it's the United States government. But in light of what we have discussed, if this is going to be an authority that has global authority, which is what we're talking about here, it may yet, it may be yet to be seen what exactly that authority is. But if I may surmise a little bit, sounds like a transnational entity that has authority across borders and across sovereign nations. Why I say that is going to be relevant in just a moment. But to summarize what we've looked at so far, one of the economic signs of the times is that the political and economic powers of the world will unite in the end times, and it is the centralization of power that enables the globally coordinated Sunday legislation and resulting sanctions upon God's people. That's the point. But let's take a look at what the merchants of the world today are actually saying. Klaus Schwab, the director of the World Economic Forum, wrote this last year at the, at the peak of the pandemic in June of 2020. He says, to achieve a better outcome, the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies. From education to social contracts and working conditions, every country from the United States to China must participate. And every industry from oil and gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. This sounds a little bit like the kings of the earth and the merchants of the earth banding together, doesn't it? But of course, not to be outdone, Pope Francis has a word to say about this topic. In a speech to the Pontifical Academy, his speech is entitled Nation, State, Nation, State. Interesting title. He says this, And this uh, was, I believe, also last year or the year before. Don't quote me on that, but there is a link there if you want to look it up. The nation state cannot be considered as an absolute, as an island in relation to its surroundings. In the current situation of globalism, not only of economy, but also of technological and cultural exchanges, the nation state is no longer able to procure by itself the common good for its population. The common good has become global, and nations must associate for their own benefit. What kind of association does the Pope suggest? Notice what he says. When a supranational common good is clearly identified, there is need for a special legally constituted authority capable of facilitating its implementation. Notice, remember, Sister White's counsel, the highest authority in the world. 
makes the decree about the final punishment in the Mark of the Beast crisis. And what does the Pope suggest? And notice he says, think of the great contemporary challenges of climate change, new slavery, and peace. Remember, remember those, particularly climate change. We'll come back to that. Continuing in the same, sta- uh, in the same speech, he says, while according to the principle of subsidiarity, individual nations must be given the power to operate as far as they can reach, on the other hand, Groups of neighboring nations, as is already the case, can strengthen their cooperation by, notice carefully, attributing the exercise of certain functions and services to intergovernmental institutions that manage their common interests. What is the Pope saying? The Pope is advancing the notion that nation states should outsource key aspects of the administration of some of their core functions for the benefit of the population to, quote-unquote, intergovernmental institutions that presumably sit outside and above the individual nations. I don't know about you, but this sounds a whole lot like Revelations chapter 17 and 18 to me. Collections of economic powers and political powers fornicating themselves with an intergovernmental agency that somehow has the moral authority to say what is the common good for all nations. Sister White writes in Bible Commentary, Volume 7, page 977, human enactments and laws manufactured by satanic agencies under a plea of goodness and restriction of evil will be exalted while God's holy commandments are despised and trampled underfoot. And all who prove their loyalty by obedience to the law of Jehovah must be prepared to be arrested, to be brought before councils that have not for their standard the high and holy law of God. We should be prepared that the movements to set the stage, to put the dominoes in place for the final crisis are all going to be done under the guise of positive change for goodness, for morality, for restriction of evil. That's what we read, and that's precisely what we see happening in the world right now. So that's the first economic sign. Globalism is a precursor to the universal global Sunday law. Number two, natural disasters create economic and political consequences. Maranatha, page 176. As men depart further and further from God, Satan is permitted to have power over the children of disobedience. He hurls destruction among men. There is calamity by land and sea. Property and life are destroyed by fire and flood. Have we heard about wildfires recently? My family on both sides, my wife and my parents live in California. We hear about fires all the time. What about flooding? Hurricanes, flooding, yes, all the time. Satan resolves to charge this upon those who refuse to bow to the idol which he has set up. His angels, or his agents, rather, point to Seventh-day Adventists as the cause of the trouble. These people stand out in defiance of law, they say. They desecrate Sunday. Were they compelled to obey the law for Sunday observance, there will be a cessation of these terrible judgments. When Sister White talks about natural disasters, we can just sort of substitute that because we have another term for that in our modern-day vernacular, don't we? It's called climate change. It's the term. It's just another thing, another term to say the same thing. And when we look at that, when we look at this, property and life are destroyed, massive destruction, 
We understand there will be economic consequences. You remember there was that ship that got stuck in the Suez Canal not long ago. Something like 12% of global trade was brought to a halt because of that one ship getting stuck in that one channel, one canal. Imagine if whole cities are wiped out, whole trade routes are rendered unusable, supply chains are being completely crippled. We're beginning to see a little bit of that because of COVID and things of that nature. But the more relevant point I want to bring out is that based on this statement, these natural disasters lead to legislation. It leads to political action. Continuing. Last events, page 111. The end is near and every city is to be turned upside down. There'll be confusion in every city. Everything that can be shaken is to be shaken. And we do not know what will come next. The judgments will be according to the wickedness of the people and the light of truth that they have had. Oh, that God's people had a sense of the impending destruction of thousands of cities now almost given to idolatry. The time is near when large cities will be swept away and all should be warned of these coming judgments. This, kind, this level of destruction, you think it's going to have some economic ramifications? Yes. But more than that, if we know anything that, if we know one thing is that the, the way to get legislators and politicians to actually take things seriously is when there's economic trouble. When people's pocketbooks are affected, all of a sudden things can happen quite quickly. And notice large cities being swept away. Keep that in mind, all right? As we take a look at this article that just came out, it was on June 2 of 2021, Scientific American, reporting on a new research. It says hurricanes threatened 32 million U.S. homes and the at-risk properties have a combined value of 8.5 trillion dollars. This is along the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast. That sounds kind of like whole cities to me, (laughs) that amount of money. And $8.5 trillion, I actually looked it up, it is a value greater than the whole of the Hong Kong and the Frankfurt Stock Exchange combined, right? So there's a lot of money we're talking about. But what does the article actually say? Climate change and development patterns are increasing the potential for property damage damage as hurricanes generate more land uh, rainfall and as sea levels rise intensifying storm surge since the uh, intensifying storm surge since the 1980s weather related losses in the US have increased by between 70 to 90% each decade corologic says and this trend isn't slowing the report says as climate change continues to reshape the way storms behave the risk in these hurricane prone areas will continue to increase So this $8.5 trillion that they say is at risk from hurricanes just in the United States alone, it's going to go up. They read in between the lines, they're saying it's been going up 70 to 90% every decade. That's a lot of economic value at risk. And if storms continue to batter these cities and people start wondering, why is that the case? People are going to start looking for answers. And again, Pope Francis, ready to stand in the gap, he has something to say about this. In a speech on Earth Day just this year in April 2021, he says, Both the global catastrophes, COVID and climate change, prove that we do not have time to wait. Francis said in a pre-recorded video for Earth Day Live, Time urges us, and as COVID-19 demonstrated, we do have the tools to face the loss. We have the instruments. This is the moment to act. We are at the edge. And what are the tools that he's proposing? He already talked about in the previous speech we read, the globalization of the world powers under this external intergovernmental power. 
things are pointing the same direction. So that's sign number two. Sign number three, inflation. Have, uh, have anyone heard of the word inflation recently in the news? Sister White has something to say about this, believe it or not. Maranatha, page 181. The Lord has shown me that some of his children would fear when they see the price of food rising, and they would buy food and lay it up by, uh, lay it by for the time of trouble. Then in the time of need, I saw them go to their food and look at it, and it had bred worms and was full of living creatures and not fit for use. Now, the main point of this statement really is to say what we discussed earlier. God will provide for us in the time of trouble. We don't need to fear. That's the, so it's a positive statement. But at the beginning, she, she mentions incidentally the condition of the world before the time of trouble. And it says the f- price of food is rising and it's rising at such a rate that even some of God's children panic and feel the need to stockpile. You see, you see where I'm, Getting this from the statement, that's talking about inflation. Let's take a look at a few headlines in the past two months. All of these headlines are from April and May and June of this year. Consumer prices jumped 5% in May, fastest pace since the summer of 2008. Lumber prices are up 232% and could spiral out of control in the next few months. As corn prices rise, food costs could follow. As copper hits a decade high, traders share what the knock-on, uh, share what the knock-on effect could be for the economy. Global food prices surged to their highest level in a decade. And the last one, I have a three-month-old baby. You know this one caught my attention. Millions of Americans are about to get hit with a diaper sticker shock. We better stock up on diapers in our house, maybe. And yes, I understand some of these things might be transient. A lot of economists are saying this is temporary, it's transitory, it's transient. Maybe so. These are some of the exact numbers. The CPI, standing for the Consumer Price Index, rose to 5% for the previous 12 months in May. That's the highest since 2008. And just for reference, the Federal Reserve tried to target the inflation rate to be 2%. We're more than double that now. Gasoline was up almost 50%. I don't think I need to tell you that. You've been to the gas pump recently. Natural gas is up 12%. Used cars, I know someone mentioned this the other day when we talked about cars, up 21%. Copper, up 27%. Lumber, up 232%. Corn is up 50%. Diapers is up almost 9%. And food globally is up 40%. Historically, the annual rate of inflation in the United States for the past century or so is around 3.25%. The Fed has targeted 2% as a healthy rate of inflation. We've been well under 2% for a long time. And all of a sudden, we have a surge in inflation, far outpacing the Fed's target. And actually, Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell just last week said, hey, inflation is happening a little bit faster than we thought. So he already announced they plan on raising interest rates in 2023. Previously, it was indefinitely in the future. Now they have a date within the next two years, they're going to start raising interest rates. Now, I need to be careful. Just like I was saying earlier, It's difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. This is still the case. I'm merely sharing with you descriptive information of what is actually happening in our world today. I don't know what the future is going to hold. Will inflation continue to go up? Maybe. Will it go down? Maybe. I'm not trying to predict, but simply to say that we have been told that inflation will be one of the economic signs 
of the times. And a lot of people in the professional class, the elites, if you will, the economists and the mainstream media, they, there's been a lot of, of talk that this is transitory, but there are also those who have fears. And the two biggest fears is stagflation or hyperinflation. Now, what are these big words? Stagflation is when there are high rates of inflation, also with high interest rates, coupled with high unemployment and a weak economy. The U.S. went through this in the 1970s. It was before I was born, but I did read up a little bit about it. And it was up to 12% of inflation in a year, up to 20% interest rates. This was a time when mortgage interest was, you know, above 10%. It was, you know, people now look at 2% mortgage rates and think it can never go up up to 9% unemployment, and negative GDP. And the problem, or or the the, the real danger, is if stagflation transitions into hyperinflation, which is runaway, uncontrolled inflation. And exact number, they say, when inflation is over 1,000% per year. And whenever that has happened, it has resulted in the collapse of civilizations. The collapse of the Roman Empire, the Weimar Republic in Germany after World War I, And the rise of Hitler was related with that. Zimbabwe, Venezuela, there are other countries. But whenever there's hyperinflation, there's no coming back from that, is what history tells us. And interestingly enough, what about the Great Depression and the Great Recession in 2008? Neither of those were hyperinflation or stagflation. Those were actual deflationary recessions, meaning prices crashed, right? Housing prices went down during the Great Recession. The bubble burst and prices dropped. But stagflation is kind of the worst of both worlds. Prices are going up and up and up and up, but the economy is weak, there's low unemployment, and interest rates are high. So what are the causes for stagflation and hyperinflation? Well, here are some of the causes, and I have some links below for where I reference these. The policy, there are two policy issues and then two market forces. Policy expanding money supply. Money printing, in other words is one major cause of inflation. Policy constricting economic output, which is higher taxes or higher interest rates. Those things constrict economic output. That causes inflation. Cost push inflation can also be the cause, where input costs or the raw materials or labor is more expensive, and so it pushes prices up. Or demand pull inflation is simply when there's a supply-demand imbalance. There's more demand than there's supply. Basic economics, supply and, ba- supply and demand, they, they, they're in sync with each other. And if you have too many dollars chasing too many goods, the price goes up. So let's talk about this, you know, each of these points just real quickly. Money printing, first of all. Have you heard the money printer going off recently? 25% of the total money supply in the United States was printed just last year alone. 25%. And you can look at the the, the hockey stick there in 2020. It just shot straight up. And you notice, you remember in 2008, I'm old enough to remember when with breathless anxiety, the talking heads on TV were talking about quantitative easing and money printing is like, there's going to be hyperinflation. It's going to be the end of the world, right? Just like we were saying earlier, it, it, it brings eyeballs and clicks. Do you know how much money we printed in 2008, 2009? It was about seven to $800 billion dollars. In 2020, we printed $9 trillion, and we're still going. That was 11 times the amount in 2008. This is unprecedented money printing in the United States. And so the $10 trillion question is, 
How will this end? I'm not an economist nor the son of an economist, so don't ask me. But I have history to look back on, and it rarely ends. What about cost push and demand pull inflation? Are we in a situation where this is at risk? Well, we've had stimulus money or helicopter money dropped on the population, as it's sometimes called in economic circles, and it increases consumer demand. We put money in people's pockets so they can spend it. So there's increased demand. However, high unemployment decreases the supply and increases the labor cost. These things are pushing in opposite directions. Lockdowns and supply chain disruptions further inhibit supply and increases input costs. And then taxes and increased taxes and increased interest rates further reduce productivity and increases the cost of doing business. So too many dollars chasing too few goods lead to price increases. I don't know about you, but it seems COVID has put us in a tough quandary. The money printer is going We're putting out uh, stimulus that's driving up demand, but then we're not actually keeping up in productivity. And I, I know in preparation for this, I was reading all sorts of sources and everybody says, stagflation will never happen again. It can't happen again. But then COVID happened. And I'm not sure who to believe anymore. Perhaps all these talking heads are right. Maybe it will be transitory. Maybe this will be nothing. Maybe, but... What we are going through is unprecedented, and I'd just be cautious trusting anyone who speaks with too much certainty about such things. Making predictions is difficult, especially about the future. However, history doesn't appear to be on their side. James 5 tells us, Go to now, you rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Simply put, money will lose its value at the end times. That's what the Bible tells us. And inflation is one sure way to make that happen. Okay, point four. Final economic sign I want to share today, severe wealth inequality creates societal unrest. In the book Education, page 228, it says, at the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine but human. The centralization of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution, all are tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. Do we see wealth inequality? And also, what is interesting is that the spirit of prophecy blends this class warfare dynamic with the ideology that led to the French Revolution. There is a correlation between these things, we're told, in the spirit of prophecy. That somehow the atheistic ideology, and we read about the beast from the bottomless pit in Revelation chapter 11, referring to the French Revolution. That atheistic ideology somehow married together and blended with this class warfare, this unrest between the wealthy and the poor, is going to be something to expect at the end of time. I don't have the quote in here, but you can look it up. Last Day Events, Pastor Philip Mills, he's back there somewhere. He shared it with me yesterday. Last Day Events, page 95, it actually tells us that the events of Revelation chapter 11, talking about the French Revolution, 
will be repeated in our cities. The French Revolution will occur again. And somehow it has to do with wealth inequality married together with this radical atheistic ideology that formed the basis of the French Revolution and later on was the breeding ground for uh, Marxism and the, you know, the ideologies that flow from that. Manuscript releases, vo- uh, releases volume 5, page 305, also says this, in India, or in India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, thousands of men and women are dying of starvation. The moneyed men, because they have the power, control the market. So there's some market manipulation also going on from the big players in the economy. They purchase at low rates all they can and, they, and then sell at greatly increased, increased prices. So there's inflation again, the increase of prices. This means starvation to the poorer classes and result in a civil war. There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation. And at that time shall Michael stand up. So all of these things, what we're seeing, the unrest in society, the the class warfare, this radical ideology that somehow fuels this type of civil war behavior with the, you know, the, the inflation in the marketplace What does it lead to? It leads further to the impetus for some global authority to clamp down and to bring peace and prosperity and safety and order again. So let's summarize what we've talked about. Natural disasters, high rates of inflation, and economic and societal instability will form the pretext for the kings and merchants of the earth to pursue means of enforcing order. These secular powers will seek to accomplish this through a global coalition with each other and a union with the religious power of Babylon. This is the fornication that we read about in Revelation chapter 18. Eventually, this power will turn to enacting religious legislation. And what begins as a national Sunday law in the United States will become a universal Sunday law around the world, which will include coordinated economic sanctions on God's people. This act may appear to bring about peace and safety for a time, but it causes Babylon's sins to reach unto heaven, triggering God's judgments in the seven last plagues. Some level of economic activity will continue through it all, but Babylon and the wealth it helped generate for the kings and merchants of the earth will be destroyed in God's final judgments. And the final economic collapse will occur at that time shortly before Jesus' second coming. That's the summary of our Bible study. And so that leaves us with the question, what should we do now? The answer is occupy till he comes. And that is the title of our message tomorrow, our final session together. We're going to synthesize what we've discussed today and yesterday and also a number of principles from throughout the early part of this week, and we're going to bring it all together. What do we do in light of what we've talked about? In light of what the final crisis is shaping up to be and the nearness of Jesus' second coming. So our time is almost up. So let's bow our heads and conclude at this time. Father in heaven, we thank you for the more sure word of prophecy. And that, Lord, we pray that you might help us to be diligent students, to think not as the world thinks, to view 
the events around us through the lens of the inspired commentary and not to filter the interpretation and the narrative that we hear outside and in society back into our scripture uh, interpretations. Help us, Lord, to be firmly rooted and grounded in a clear, thus saith the Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we might be faithful with our dollars and cents, but also in our service for you. As we think about these things that are coming upon the world, it's easy to become unnerved and to be worried and anxious. But Lord, we serve a God who is more powerful than the enemy. And may we be faithful to keep our hand in yours, to not wander into our, the works of our own devisings. May we humbly surrender our wills into your care, and may we obey what you clearly reveal to us. So please be with us today and the remainder of this camp meeting and guide us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.